Before we go back to the Gospel of John, just a couple of things I want to remind you of. First, the Married Life Live. Uh, you can sign up in the app. Signing up early helps us a lot as we plan, and so you can just go straight in the app. On the bottom of it is a little link. Touch it, sign up, super easy, free of charge, childcare, available and free. So I hope you'll take advantage of that. I know you need a night away, right? And it's going to be a really, really good night of just focusing on, on your marriage. And so I hope you'll be a part of that. If you don't have the app, you're not sure how to download the app, just uh, see me or somebody that kind of looks like they know what they're doing and right after the service or somebody at the book cart, and they'll help you uh, download that app. Second thing I'd like to say is welcome Honduras back, right? The mission trip, at least you're back, Justin, right? Did you take a special flight or did you just make the trip from Atlanta? So everybody's back safely, though. Oh, still in Atlanta, okay, but they're back in the United States. So our, our mission team made it back safely to the United States. They were in Honduras, and we look forward to hearing from them um, just everything that happened, all the ministry that took place there. Maybe next week we'll get a video for that. Uh, Mitch has probably has that plan to do. And then also I'd like to uh, say, first of all, if you're not reading the Lent devotions, you're really missing out on a lot. I hope you're doing that. They're in the app. They're also available on the website. They're written by our elders, our deacon, and deacons and some of our spouses. And so I encourage you to jump in. Don't feel like you have to go back and start at the beginning. I know it's kind of a pain to scroll through a bunch to get to the day, especially as we go along, but we're working to fix that where it won't have to be so much scrolling to get there. But just jump back in. You don't have a day on Sunday. And so uh, during the 40 days of Lent, Sundays are your breaks. There's not a devotion for Sunday that you can jump back in um, on tomorrow. So let's pray, and we'll be in John chapter 17. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we gather here today not just to read your word for just intellect or just information, but God, we read your word because your word points us to Jesus Christ. And God, today as we look at Christ and his words and his actions, his prayer, God, I pray that uh, his life will change our life. And God, that may we understand that our identity uh, is in you and that you are our life. And God, I pray that us as believers will respond to your word. For anyone here who's unsure about their salvation, unsure about their eternal life, God, I pray that today will be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. I asked this question on the Monday email. It's a great question. And it's basically, what do you want? All right, what do, what do you, not just like, for lunch or, you know, the next few hours. I'm talking about what do you want? Like, what is your, what's your dreams, your aspirations, your goals? James Smith says that the things that we want are more important in our discipleship than anything else, right? I mean, we, can, we need information. We got to know the word. We got to be in prayer. But at the core, what do you want? What really drives you? Because the things that you want in life determine what you value and what you put your priorities on. And so it's easy that we can say we want a certain thing, but if our actions don't align with that, then we have to really question, is that really what I want or not? And I know it's like, for, okay, in the morning, it's a, that's a heavy philosophical question, but it's one that we have to continuously ask ourselves. One, because we don't always understand what we want. We don't always know what we want. We can have what the Bible calls a divided heart, double-minded, meaning that we can want something, but we can also turn around and want something else that's contradictory to that goal or that aspiration. And so if we're going to 
desire what God desires, then we have to understand what God wants from us and for us. And as we look at John 17, we're going to see Jesus focusing in on his relationship with God and what his values are. And this is a big deal because God, what God calls what we value, we, he calls that worship, what we worship, all right? And, and it's easy to think of worship as just spiritual activity, but the things that we long for, desire, set our goals on, that we look toward to bring fulfillment, that's what we worship. And God says, worship nothing above me, have nothing above me. And so what we want to think about today is what Paul said in Romans, a verse that may be familiar to many of you in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies. And he's not just talking about your physical body. He's talking about your whole self, your whole life, to present it to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, because this is your spiritual act of worship. This is your spiritual worship. So all of you, all of yourself, God says, I want all of you to be about all of my glory. And that's why we're here on earth. And Jesus' life was entirely and completely devoted to God's glory. That's what he wanted most. And as we look at him today, and as we look at this prayer that he begins to pray, I hope that through his life, not just as an example, but his life living in you and through you in the person of the Holy Spirit will begin to make your desires more and more what Jesus' desires were. So look at verse 1 of chapter 17. After Jesus had spoken these words, what words, okay? If you haven't been here for the last 10 or 12 weeks, all right, we've been in this farewell discourse, maybe longer than that. Jesus has just given us some incredible teaching in these chapters. Chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16 are Jesus' preaching and and telling his disciples, teaching his disciples the things that they need to know. And these are not just casual theological things that would be helpful. I mean, he's telling them essential truths. The Holy Spirit is going to be living in you. Greater things that you'll do after, Jesus says, after I'm gone than you're doing now. And, And I can imagine the shock on their faces when Jesus said that. Because obviously they're going to be very sad that Jesus is leaving. They don't understand where he's going. But we looked at a few weeks ago that primarily they were mostly concerned about themselves. They weren't really inquiring about, Jesus, what's, what's, where are you going next? What's going to happen next? They're concerned about themselves. And we're all guilty of that. So back to our wants and our desires. We can say we want Jesus and we want his kingdom come and his will to be done. But we have also, if we look deep in our heart, oftentimes there's other desires that are rivaling those desires and competing with those desires. And oftentimes, those desires are more important. I think about this question a lot. I think, if I won the lottery, what would I do? All right, what would be next? If I won $50 million in the lottery, what would be my agenda? And I would dare say that that probably reveals more about what I worship than the things that I'm saying here today. Because if I say, man, I, I want an easy life, a comfortable life, it shows that my, really, my idol what I'm worshiping is me, my comfort. If you said, man, I'd start a company, man, I'd be so powerful, I'd run things, and I'd have lots of employees, and I'd make a lot of money, it might show that your idols are power or control. So look at your heart. Think about your heart. And as we read about Jesus and his prayer, think about his teachings. Think about his Holy Spirit that he's put within you that desires to do the will of God as Jesus did. So Jesus, he moves from 
a time of teaching to a time of prayer. And his disciples more than likely have left the upper room at this point. They're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. We're just a few hours away from his arrest, maybe just minutes even away from his arrest. And so Jesus, as he gathers his 11 disciples there together, maybe they huddle together, they circle up, and he begins to pray. And they get the benefit of hearing Jesus pray. Throughout Scripture, we see Jesus pray quite often. It says Jesus went away to pray. He secluded himself to pray. Even here and there, we get little bits and segments of his prayer, but nothing like what we're going to have today in John 17, what what Jesus provides us by this gift given to the apostle John that he records Jesus' prayer. And, and, And so if you've ever thought about what would Jesus pray for real, what would he pray? We're going to find that out today. So Jesus and the Father are in perfect harmony with one another. So he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. The Son may glorify you. And so he prays to his Father. And, you know, we, it's easy to think about prayer. It's kind of like a walkie-talkie, right? God, come in. Are you there? Yep, I'm here. What do we need? And we think about uh, prayers like a back-and-forth kind of conversation, but you realize Jesus had a continuous conversation with his Father. This was a continuous dialogue that always went along because he was one with the Father. He's in perfect harmony with the Father. So when he prays, it's uh, obviously a dedicated focus time without the distractions of life and ministry that he's focusing on what he's saying to his Father, but he constantly was in prayer with his Father because he was one with his Father. And so here we have a dedicated full chapter just of the longest recorded prayer by Jesus where he's going to tell us what he values. And again, this is just just right prior to his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, just hours ahead. And so kind of a a general outline that we're going to be teaching this chapter, three segments. Today, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. All right, the next segment, 6 through 19, he's going to be praying for his 11 disciples, his disciples. He prays for them. And then here's what's amazing. At the end of the prayer, he prays for us. He prays for everyone who will put their faith in him in the future to come. And so it's going to be an incredible chapter these next three weeks as we look at this. And so he prays, the hour has come. And this is not just simply the hour that Jesus has been preparing for. This is the hour that all of creation has been waiting for from the beginning. You see, in the garden, in sin, in the brokenness, in the separation from God that happened, all creation has been groaning and has all been broken, waiting for the redemption that was to come in this moment. So the hour has come, and it's definitely Jesus' hour, but it's the hour that God would send a rescuer to save humanity from their sin. And it's the, most, it's, the, it's the moment that changes everything. Everything changes on the cross and through the grave when sinful creatures can once again be in perfect fellowship, harmony with God because of Jesus, what he does and accomplishes on the cross. It's amazing that when God looks at us as believers, he sees Jesus. And I don't think we say that enough in our churches and in Christianity That when God sees us, he looks through the cross, he looks through the blood, and he sees Jesus and he sees you 
covered by the blood. And that's why we say often that all our sins are forgiven us. Past, present, and future, we stand before God declared righteous and holy. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Jesus did, and we put our faith in Jesus. And so we stand with no condemnation, as Romans 1 says, 8, 1 says. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there's this radical change. And that's why Paul, later in Romans, can say, what do we do? Do we keep sinning so grace can keep piling up and be, be even more abounding? No. He says, no way. How can you who died to sin live any longer in it? There's this fundamental change that happened in your DNA spiritually when you came to Christ. Everything changes. And so Jesus broke the power of sin. He broke the power of hell and death. And spiritual life triumphed over spiritual death at this moment. So Jesus knew the hour had come. He knew God's sovereign plan. Unlike us, Jesus knew the details for what were to come because he was God. He knew what was happening. He knew God was sovereign over all things. Don't we wish that could be our mindset, honestly? Think about what you're going through right now. I've had some conversations the last, this last week with people who are just going through so much college students, adults, people who live in Bainbridge, people who have moved away. And there's just so much suffering and adversity and, and struggles and questions. And Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. We don't know, obviously, what's going to happen next. We don't know what's going to be the next turn. But you know what we know? All right, hear this. We know that God is sovereign. And we know as his children, as he looks at us through the cross, we know that he desires our good and his glory through his children, that he's working all things for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So no matter the twists and turns and the suffering and the difficulties that you go through, God's working in an incredible way. And it may not be easy. It's usually not. It's usually not fun. It's painful. But God is working. And that's what we have to remind ourselves as Jesus kneels in prayer and he looks up to the Father, stands in prayer and looks to the Father, that he knows that God is in control and God wants to be glorified through his life. And God wants to be glorified through our lives. And as we go through the trials and the difficulties and the struggles, we know that we're going to do it imperfectly. We know there's going to be moments of doubts and questioning and times where we're going to wonder, God, are you even there? Are you even listening? Much like the Psalms we've been reading. But at the end, we know that God is glorified through what we're going through. And in prayer, we submit to his sovereign plan. And that brings him glory because people see. People see our lives being different. I mean, everybody can like celebrate and worship, right, when things are good. But when things are bad and things are difficult and things are tough, that's a little bit different. So again, in verse 1, Jesus prays for himself. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. When I was in college, I majored in psychology. It was kind of like a, I don't know what I want to do in life, so this sounds like a good degree to get, so I'm going to major in psychology. And it actually was pretty interesting at times. Uh, a lot of the stuff, you know, I had to unlearn after the fact. But, you know, the, the truth is um, th there's a lot of things about the human person that are deep and hard to understand. And I, f I fell in love with 
like the testing and measurement side of psychology. And look, I just know enough to make me dangerous. So if you're a psychologist in here, just bear with me, all right? But I love the, the tests, and I love looking at these tests, especially at the Rorschach, where they give people these things to look at, and it, and it causes them to dig deep in their psyche and to know what's really motivating them and what's propelling them, what's causing them to, you know, to, to, to do these things or respond this way. And, you know, and, and I found that to be very fascinating. I also found it ultimately to be kind of stupid because right, there's really no definitive answers in that stuff. But nevertheless, at that time in my life, I, found, I thought it was very, very interesting to look at those type of tests. And as I look at this chapter, I think about prayer as kind of a barometer to peer into our hearts to see what we really value. All right, so we talked about our, our time and our energy. What are we putting our things into, our times into? What are we looking at? If we won the lottery, what would we do? But I think also the words that we say when we pray reveal a lot about our hearts. Because, you know, when I was younger and, and earlier as a Christian, I look at my prayers and even think about the rope prayers I would pray, like kind of like the canned prayer that I pulled out, you know, and here's my prayer. And it was all about, like, protect me, help me have a good day, help everybody in my family to be safe. And, and that's the totality of my prayer was just like, God, make it easy for me, right? Make life work well for me. And so your prayers reveal a lot about yourself. And even though Jesus here is praying for himself, he's definitely not praying a selfish prayer. And so think about your prayer life. Think about the things you say to God or think about the lack thereof of your prayer life. What does that say about your trust in God? And, and I know we all come up with excuses. I'm just so ADD. I can't really focus on prayer. You know, I'd rather be reading the Word than praying. Or, you know, I get distracted. My mind goes everywhere. Yes, join the club. All of us do that, right? We're all all over the place because prayer can be a battle. It can be very, very difficult. But we discipline ourselves, and we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But Jesus prays for himself, but he doesn't pray just a selfish prayer. Just like the Lord's Prayer the primary purpose of Jesus' prayer is asking for God's will to be done, for his glory to be done. And I noticed a few other commonalities between what we call the Lord's Prayer and this prayer. And even though this prayer is referred to as the high priestly prayer, I think this is really a better, would be the Lord's Prayer with this prayer. And the other one would be like the disciples' prayer. Because one, Jesus wouldn't pray the other prayer because he wouldn't say, forgive us our trespasses, right? Jesus didn't need to do that. So that was for them. That was for the disciples. This is the Lord's Prayer, but compared to the one that we know as the Lord's Prayer, God is addressed as Father in both prayers, so it's a very relational prayer. And I love what Spurgeon says. He says, in times of tribulation, let us fall back upon our sonship and the fatherhood of our great God. You see, God could have related to Jesus any way he wanted to, to relate to him, but he chose father and son relationship. Why? Because there's a special intimacy and this bond, and there's so much that goes into that picture that we can kind of grab our minds around and hold on to, that here the Son is talking to the Father. The Father is intimately talking to the Son, and they're sharing. And so in tribulation, we have to understand that we're children of God, sons and daughters. And God, again, is looking out for our good and His glory, that He's working these things together for good, because we're His children. And if you're a parent in here, I know that, you know, Greg and Rachel, when they came up here with Zeke, I mean, they, they want what's best for Zeke. I mean, why would you want harm to your child? Why would you want difficulty unnecessarily to your child? Yes, there's going to be times where they're going to have to kind of turn him loose and say, look, you're going to have to make some tough decisions on your own. 
and you're going to have to learn some hard lessons in life. That's going to happen. We need to do that as, as parents. But we, we always are nurturing and loving and want to see them uh, thrive. And so this relationship between God and Jesus, the Father and the Son, we see that in the Lord's Prayer and this prayer as well. And then just, there's this recognition for God's name and his holiness. And there's a concern for the work of the kingdom of God in both prayers. And then there's a concern for keeping us from evil. And so back to verse 1. This serves really as a long introduction for the entire prayer, but we're going to spend a lot of time on verse 1 and then go through 2 through 5 rather quickly. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And as I said, the disciples' prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, that is the model prayer for us to pray. Obviously, this prayer, we wouldn't pray, glorify us, right? That, that wouldn't, shouldn't be part of your prayer. God, glorify me today, right? But even in him saying to glorify him, like Jesus is still God. He deserves the glory. But he says, even this, Father, is for your glory, your Son, that the Son may then in turn glorify you. Jesus, being God, could pray that, but was the crucifixion, was it for, God, for Jesus' glory? We understand maybe that the crucifixion is for God's glory. How was it for Jesus' glory? Because Jesus' death reveals the glorious character of God. I mean, don't, let me just don't flop past that. Let's say that again. Jesus' death reveals the glorious character of God. What do I mean by that? The cross would glorify Jesus because the cross was for the glorification of God. How so? Look what John says, not in the Gospel of John, but in 1 John 4.10. He says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. All right, That's a really big word, and maybe you're wondering what it means. It just means satisfaction. Jesus turned away the righteous anger of God and satisfied the demands of his justice on our behalf. So Jesus was the propitiation that he took on the sins of the world in our place. He turned away the righteous anger of God toward sin. And so let's go back to where we started on this idea of worship and value and what we want. If the essence of sin is dishonoring God by preferring other things over him and acting on those preferences... That's John Piper's definition. It's a great definition. We need to think about that our sins in terms of not just like the list of six things we can come up with. These are like terrible sins. But anything we do to prefer something more than God or over God and then acting on that, those things are sin. So Jesus, when he went to the cross, he took on the wrath of God for your sins and my sins. And that just doesn't, again, include just nine or ten things. That is you choosing other things over God's glory, that Jesus took that on. And, and so what I see is that through Jesus' death and through his resurrection and being brought into his family, and we'll see more about that next verse, that in that we find this grace that not only propels us to live for his glory, but it changes our desires and our wants at the very core and foundation of who we are. And so at some level, if your core driving force of your life isn't God's glory, and it never has been really, then you need to begin to think about what's your relationship with God? What's your relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Because if he's in you, 
and Christ in you, and you in Christ, as we talked about the, our union with Christ, changes our mindset about everything that we do. And we can be that living sacrifice. And we prefer Him more and more progressively over time over other things. And so we've been born again into His family, and He's working and changing us. Jesus' life was totally, perfectly devoted to God and His glory all the time. And He was always obedient to God and His will. We're not, of course. But Jesus accomplished the work God had given Him to do, and He's given us work to do. Ephesians says, we're his workmanship. We're his, uh, another translation says, we're his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. So we, we have these works that are prepared according to God, prepared in advance for us to do. And that as we live our life, God reveals to us, if we're in tune with him, walking in the Spirit, he reveals to us these good works for us to do. And so we prefer him and we prefer His will over all the other things of life, more and more as we grow in Him and His Word. And so is that, is that indicative of your life? Does that describe your life? I would hope at some level you're here today. You're desiring to know more of God, most of you, because you're here. Maybe it's not your desire. I pray that God will change your heart today, and that will be the case. Verse 2. Since you have been... You have given him authority, and again, this is Jesus praying, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the purpose of Jesus' sacrifice was to provide salvation. We know that, right? His purpose was to provide salvation. But look what he says here. He acknowledges here that God has given him authority over all people, and he says that he is given him the authority to give, next verse, eternal life to those who he, he, whom you have given to me, Jesus says. So this idea that God has given Jesus, and Jesus in turn gives these people salvation, the names of those who should be saved. And we've seen this again and again in the Gospel of John. Now, I know that for many people, when you come across verses like this, it can be very, very confusing because maybe you grew up in traditions where, like, you know, oh, man, how could God have chosen to give people's names to Jesus for eternal life? And it's a tough, difficult thing. And, and I've noticed as more and pe- more people get in the Word and you're reading the Word, that you come across these verses and you begin to wonder, okay, how do I reconcile that with my belief system? I would encourage you to keep digging in the Word Studying the Word, because the Word will provide clarity for you. Let me just remind you, in the Gospel of John, how many times we've seen this truth. Back in chapter 3, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Chapter 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. I'm sorry, I read the same verse twice. I, I think I copied it down wrong. Verse chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws me. Yes, I, I copied both down twice. Sorry. Uh, but anyway, you can look that up later if you're following along in the app. It's there. But at multiple times in the Gospel of John, we see this truth. So let me read verse 2 to you again. Since you have given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life, 
to all whom you, God the Father, has given him, Jesus. So left to ourselves, here's what we need to remember. Left to ourselves, we would continue in rebellion and rejection of Jesus. We would. Scripture makes it clear. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. But from our perspective, and here's, here's helpful to, to bring this down to street level to make it help you. From our perspective, it feels like when I was five years old and my dad told me the gospel, man, I believed it and I put my faith in the gospel and I put my faith in Jesus. I was baptized. Man, I, I feel like, like I made all those choices, all those decisions. But in God's economy, he's the one who initiated salvation. He gave grace that my dad and mom, well into their 30s, would hear the gospel afresh and anew and put their faith in him. And then they would come home and they would share the gospel with their three sons and we would put our faith in Jesus or at least make a profession of faith in Jesus. And so from us, it feels like we made a bold choice to put faith in God. But you have to be comfortable with the fact that this is, it's difficult to reconcile these two. But as D.L. Moody said, it's kind of like you grab one rope and you begin to pull that rope and the rope just falls to the ground. You grab the other rope and you begin to pull and the rope falls to the ground. But you grab both ropes and begin to pull and God hoists you up. Because you understand there's this tension, but these go together in God's supernatural harmony. And I can't explain to you but, uh, perfectly for you to understand intellectually because I don't understand perfectly intellectually. But God is God and I'm not God. So sovereign election does not contradict or negate the responsibility of people to repent and trust Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And I'll just say to that, it's unfortunate that way too many churches err on one rope or the other without trying to, to comprehend that there should be this tension and balance because God is sovereign, he's in control, and let him be God in this matter. And don't spend all our time discussing, debating, getting mad and angry over something that we're never going to fully comprehend. And I probably made people on both sides mad here, right? Like if you're way over here, like, oh, you didn't say enough, right? That's not the whole story. Over here, you're like, oh, that's, that's, I don't agree with that. Look, be comfortable with the tension. Be comfortable with the paradox. It's constantly through Scripture. Jesus says, my elect come to me, and he says, whoever will, will come and drink of the water of life freely. If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink, right? The invitation is there. But Jesus says, God has given him those who would believe. In verse Three, then another thing is hard to understand, difficult to understand, and this one shouldn't be hard, but it's hard because we've come to believe that eternal life is something that we get when we go to heaven and we, you know, we pray a prayer and we go to heaven and eternal life after we die and there we spend eternity with God. And Jesus redefines for us eternal life and he says eternal life is not just living forever. Look what he says. He says, and this is eternal life that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's really, really important to know. Because here's why. Because it's easy believism that says, just pray a prayer, come to the front, you know, put your faith in Jesus, and you can go to heaven and have eternal life. But who's going to turn that down, really, right? I mean, if if you get the right sermon, the right stories, the right crowd, the perfect environment— Basically, everybody's going to want eternal life, right? I can do that, right? Pray that prayer, and I'm going to have eternal life. But I wonder if we 
told people that eternal life isn't just living forever in heaven, but it's about knowing God and knowing Jesus. And, and that's what eternal life is. And when you get to heaven, in that moment, the things on this earth which we see dimly, as Paul says, we, see, we don't see face to face, we see clouded now. But there we'll see face to face, and it all in that moment will make sense to us. Because eternal life, time ends in eternity, all right? I mean, there's no time. Before creation, there was no time. So we get to heaven, time ceases, all right? And in that moment, it all makes sense to us. This is eternal life. What I knew in part on this earth is God continued to work on me and mold me and shape me. And sometimes it was so frustrating because I'm never quite like there that I think I should be. And God just continues to show his grace on me and he works on me. But I get to heaven one day and boom, I see Jesus. And he makes it all clear and perfect. I know him perfectly. That's the end of the journey. But eternal life starts now. We have this intimacy and this knowledge of Jesus. And that's the word that is used here in John. It's an experiential knowledge of Jesus and the Father. To know God, to participate in his life, in his mission. And we're extensions of that life for him in this world. You are. I am. I always tell people, when they come to be baptized, especially your kids, I like to say to them, you know, you, you understand about wearing a team on your shirt, right? We all walk around. We got Georgia, FSU, whatever team you love, you're proud of. I say, when you come to baptism, you're acknowledging as a result of what happened in your heart, your salvation, that now Team Jesus is your team, right? Team Jesus is what you're all about because he's in you. And he's working through you. And he's changed you. And, and, I, and I always say, be careful. Don't hide and cover up Jesus when it's too much pressure or the environment isn't right or everybody else is doing something different. See, that's what we have a tendency to do. We're like, oh, no, no, that's not my team. Jesus, uh, yeah, I, yeah, not so much. And then you get around Christian people. And you're like, yeah, team Jesus, team Jesus. Check it out. We do that, don't we? We all do that to some degree or the other. But God is working for us to know him and experience him and be his extension, his life to this world. And so if you won't boldly proclaim who you are, how is the world going to know? How's, how are people around you going to know Jesus? I told somebody this the other day. This is really, really old, but like, well, I've never heard that before. I guess things just circle around, right? You're the only Bible that people will ever read. You're the only Jesus that people may ever, may ever see, right? We've heard that for years, some of you, but that's new maybe to some of you in here. That's the truth. You're an extension of his life. So to know God. So Jesus is praying for us to know him, to know eternal life. Let me keep moving quickly. Verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. All right, think about this for a second. Jesus is saying he's accomplished the work, but the cross is still ahead of him. Now, there's different opinions on this. I know that this might not be the correct opinion, but I'm just going to throw it out because it made sense to me that Jesus is indicating that his work of 
that was given to him by the Father, his will that Jesus was constantly demonstrating and doing what God wanted him to do. But we still have the cross ahead. But from this point forward, other than one last display of authority in chapter 18, Jesus will take on a passive role, allowing the sinful world to abuse and murder him. So potentially he could be saying, I've accomplished the work because at this point, he just allows himself to be abused and murdered. He's the sacrifice for our sin. I encourage you, if you're one of those people who come up to me and like, let me show you a few other things it could be. Research that on your own. Shoot me an email. I'd love to hear, but I probably already read it. So verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he says, Now, Father, as I'm getting ready to go to the cross, and then the grave, the ascension, the glorification of Jesus. He's saying, I was there before the world existed. Eternity passed. He was a person in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus has always existed. And Jesus is be returning to his glory. What does that mean? Philippians 2.7 tells us that Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of man. So Jesus set aside his privileges that he had when he was in heaven, when he came to earth. But when Jesus returns to heaven, to the Father, he will take that position of honor and authority next to the Father. That's what he's praying, and that's what Jesus did. And what's he doing now? What's Jesus doing? As we look at this prayer over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see this is called the high priestly prayer because so much of this prayer is about Jesus interceding for those whom he loved his disciples, for us. He's interceding. But you know what? That's what he's doing right now for us. Scripture tells us that he continues to pray for his people from this exalted position at God's right hand. And Scripture says he's interceding for those who belong to him. That's a big deal. That Jesus Christ in heaven, we don't know everything that happens in heaven, but we know one thing that Jesus is praying for you. And like he told Peter, Peter, I prayed for you, that your faith won't fail, and after you do fall, you're going to return to me, because I prayed for you, Peter. And Jesus is in heaven praying for us, that we will see what God has done for us in the cross and in the empty grave, that through his work on the cross, he changes everything. And that's why, through his power, we can say, God, my life is a living sacrifice for you. This is my worship. And God, I don't always want you the most, but I've said this before. Pray to God, God, I want to want you the most. God, I, make that your prayer. I want you to give me those desires above everything else. So, in your head application, what do you want? You know, one guy I said, I heard many years ago say, he said, follow the trail of your time, your energies, your passion. Just follow that trail. What do you spend your time and money on and your energies on? And follow that trail, and it's going to lead to a throne. And whatever is on that throne, that's what you worship. And I know it's not always that easy because the time, I'm not saying you, if you don't read your Bible more than you do these yard work, that means yard work is your God. But we need to look and, and begin to ask God to reveal to us those false idols, those things that we put above you. 
and in our heart, Jesus wants us to experience eternal life because he is more valuable. Get to know him. Get to know him. Because it's out of our love relationship with him comes these desires to grow and to serve and to begin to just want to do God's will above all else. And how do we do that? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If you're not spending time with Jesus in prayer and scripture, it's going to be hard to have affections for him. If you're one of those truckers that Stephen was talking about on the road and you're gone for a year, chances are your wife back at home, there ain't much love there left, right? You don't know her. She doesn't know you. If you go months or weeks, days, without being in God's word, without hearing from God, without focusing on the word of Christ, the gospel, then how do you expect to allow your wants and desires to begin to shift to be more, it's about you, God. It's about you, Jesus, not about me. So pray. Pray like Jesus. Pray for God's glory. Pray that you will worship God above all else. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you've given us life and everything that we need to live it in a way that pleases and honors and glorifies you. And God, we know this flesh is a constant enemy to us that we fight and war against. But God, greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world, that you are greater, God, and you live within us. And your spirit is doing great things around us and through us and in us. God, help us to submit to your will and allow your grace just to overwhelm us so we see that the salvation that you've given us means more than just going to heaven, but eternal life begins today. And God, I pray that we'll walk in that. In Jesus' name, amen.